I am constantly worried about what we do today. Is that going to still be what we want to do in two years, in three years? Let's not find short tactical fixes. Let's build the foundation, build the systems, build the automation to make sure everything as much as possible we're doing right now will still make sense in two to three years. And that's always how I think. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Have you been to this office before? I have not, actually. Well, if you're going to be a CEO one day, you might as well start getting used to these 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 venture... Oh, I know most of them on Sand Hill. You do? But um, we have a Sand Hill office. I heard because there were some complaints about the 280. (laughs) I'm about to hop on it here in uh, in an hour. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, I know most of them up and down. I've considered both CEO and actually being a partner several times in mm, between career things. Don't go to venture. It's not time. It's not time. And like the world needs more good operators that have the energy to go do it. But I will say over and over again, a consistent theme that came up with every single person that I talked to is, Oh, yeah. She wants to and will be a CEO one day. (laughs) Have you always been that way? Like, when did that thought even start tickling you? Honestly, it kind of organically happened. I'll start from an earlier story. When I was at Tableau Software, this is like a kind of funny, odd story. But as I was firing somebody, she hugged me and said, you're going to be a VP someday. And I laughed in her face and I said, no, like you have to be crazy. To want to be a VP in tech. No, three years later, VP, right? Then I get to Alteryx and where I worked with Scott and starting to learn more about the business and everything. And then all of a sudden it kind of like hit me. I was like, probably not this size company, but I think I can do this. Mm. I think maybe I want to do it. Why? I just think that there's something so intriguing about having that strategic oversight over every single function in the company and understanding what you're good at and what you're not. Like, I will never be a CFO. And I've been asked in CEO interviews before, what's the first thing you'll bring in? Number one, CFO. CFO. Number two, used to be CHRO, now CPO usually, people officer. Know what you're not great at. <laughs> and I think I always throw them off on the HR part, but I think people undervalue that when you're building the culture, particularly as you're coming in new. So you've done CEO interviews. I've turned down, yeah, several. Why did you ultimately not walk the CEO? Why didn't you walk down that path? I've always felt like I wasn't quite ready. There was different instances and I just felt, you know, it's time to start looking at the cap table and it's time to start digging into the past investor decks. And I always felt like I was missing something. And I actually came to GitLab because I worked with our CFO in a prior life and he got me interested in the role. And then I met Sid, who's awesome. And it all happened from there. But I knew that he would help me fill that blind spot. And he would help me learn more about that side of the business and give me the confidence I need Mm. to nail it in the future. And were you transparent in the process that you were also considering not even different companies, just different types of roles? As far as transparent with? Like GitLab with others. Not entirely because I don't like to play that game. I first and foremost, what are you doing in an interview? You're selling yourself. Yeah. Then if it goes right, they're selling you. Yeah. 
And I think too many companies get that wrong, by the way. GitLab did that perfectly. Tell me. Like when it was time for the sell, they sold. But there has been past roles many years ago. They put me through the ringer. They did all the interviews. And then they gave me an offer. And I called the CEO and I said, you, you forgot one major thing. He said, what? I said, you didn't sell me. I'm not excited about this job right now. I'm glad to hear that you're all excited about me. It seems like a great offer, but you forgot to get me excited along the way. And I thought he needed to hear that. He was thankful for it. I thought he needed to hear that feedback for the future success because it's a two-way street. I'm evaluating the company as much as they're evaluating me at a certain point. And I'm really curious when you're looking at these different jobs, what's the framework that you're evaluating these opportunities on? Is it title? Is it growth? Is it cap table? Is it money? What is the things that you're actually looking at? Like, what are the values that you have that you're trying to align to the opportunity? So the values are super important. Is it actually a values-based company, a mission-based company, or something else? There's different types that exist, but I actually break it down to three Ps. The number one, and this changed over my career, people. How are the people? Again, as we're interviewing, are we getting along? Do I think we'll align? My boss, in this case, the CEO, will we mesh well? That's super important to me, and that's because I've been part of really great cultures. Tableau Software, best culture back in the day ever. And I don't think I realized it at the time. I don't think I really understood how special that was. And then, you know, you go to different companies and it doesn't feel the same. I wanted that back. Second is passion about the space. Clearly, I come from data and analytics, so no brainer there. I love data and analytics. But I started to get a little bit of the feeling that I wasn't really being challenged anymore there. I don't mean to sound egotistical about that, but it wasn't as much of a challenge. What's the next big thing? Efficiency around software delivery. That's what GitLab does. And so I have passion about what we can transform this space into. And the third thing is the product. I am a product leader from the past and I have worked on incredible products and I have worked on products that needed a lot of love, particularly now that I'm on the marketing track, having an incredible product, a high quality product that fills a gap, that fills a need, makes my job so much easier as a marketer. What about your own? So those are the company values that are important for you. Yes. What about for you? When you think about the different options and you go home and you confide in Scott or a significant other, what is the thing that you're like, I really want? The things that you're describing are the characteristics of the business, right? What about the things for you? I'm an athlete by nature. I played soccer all the way through college. I want to win. I want to go to the company that I think is most well positioned to win. And I want to do it together. So you ask, is it title? Is it money? What is it? To me, when you win as a company, all of that plays out in the right direction. I think that's fair. And so when you're evaluating win, to your point, when you look at GitLab's financials, murdering it. This company is crushing it. So you're like, okay, I might as well take advantage of what is obviously this incredible ride that folks are having, add that experience of scale and growth to my resume, and then maybe take on a new industry that's different from the path that I was on and prove to myself that I can be successful in 
a different type of product and market and that kind of thing. And then use that as my platform moving forward. Of course. Can I learn it? And do I have the desire to learn it? It was always something that I'm looking for as I go from role to role. But yeah, from the perspective of GitLab, great company, no doubt. But it's at the exact same phase that I joined Tableau and that I joined Alteryx. I joined right after IPO. Why do you like that phase? Maybe because I'm crazy. I don't know. I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm just nuts. But to me, that scale, that's like the moment in time where a company truly hits their maturity. It's like the awkward teenager and you got to grow up fast. You don't have time. You don't have time to mess up. The public eye is on you now. That brings a sense of calmness. You know, sometimes I think it ticks my team off where I'm like, no, this is normal. This is actually normal. We're okay here. Seen it before. But for a lot of people, it's their first time. For a lot of even founders and CEOs, it's their first time. And I just love that phase. I love that through around a billion. It's fascinating to me. Isn't it crazy? Most people think by the time you go public, you have everything figured out. That's why you're going public. You put together all of your filings. You prepare everything. Turns out like there's still, in a lot of cases, what feels like loosely held disasters. You know, like almost surprisingly so. We're like, wait a second, you're a public company? Do you ever experience that? Every single role, <laughs> every single role. And it's not everything. Like they have enough of their stuff together to obviously do it. And all three of them did it successfully. But yeah, there's a wake up moment where it's like, oh, we got to scale that. We got to do this differently. Yeah. Maybe that's why you like it because it complements your skill set of, okay, I am not the builder, I'm the scaler. I will come in and I will put together all these processes that are obviously missing. And if you can do that, it's almost like these companies are winning and growing in spite of themselves. And so if you can put a few puzzle pieces in place, all of a sudden it's a meaningful unlock. Yeah, no, it's true. And my very first day at GitLab was actually an executive offsite. And it was one of their first ones in person since the pandemic. And I remember the, an executive coach came in and we had all taken the, you know, there's the different versions of your personality and what you bring to the table. And one of it was skill sets. And there was one person in the top right corner for scale. And it was me because mm. that's what I've seen. That's what I've done. And I was kind of sticking out like a sore thumb, but she brought a great point. That's probably why I'm here to help with that. What do you think the criteria were that fed into figuring out that you were on the upper right quadrant of scale? Well, it was a bunch of questions. It's yeah, of this. like what? It's like, one of this is. I am constantly worried about what we do today. Is that going to still be what we want to do in two years, in three years? Let's not find short tactical fixes. Let's build the foundation, build the systems, build the automation to make sure everything as much as possible we're doing right now will still make sense in two to three years. And that's always how I think. And do you think if you came to a Kleiner Perkins startup, you'd freak out? I wonder, what do you think are the shortcomings of going early? I think it's just a completely different muscle. Yeah. So at my time at Alteryx, we acquired a bunch of companies. They're all smaller. And I got pretty close to a lot of the founders, just sitting down over a beer, talking to them about, you know, one day there was a company in Brooklyn, I wasn't able to pay my employees and I had to worry about the electric bill. Just things, the three people around a coffee pot thing mm -hmm. seems scary to me. Yeah. It seems well, scary. Well, it's existential. It's crazy. Yeah. Like there's a chance the company just doesn't make it. Always. Whereas there's, you know, in your world, like it's degrees of performance. How are you going to perform to what you committed to the street? This is different. It's way different. And it's maybe some would say it's actually safer and it probably is. 
But yeah, it's the grit that these founders have. I have massive respect for, particularly ones that then go and become the public company CEO, the founder and CEO and continue on. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you think that you could, let's say your next job, let's just pretend is the CEO role. It's probably not going to be the CEO role of a GitLab. Do you know what I mean? Like their risk tolerance is going to be lower than the first time CEO. And by the way, usually the GitLabs of the world, the founder is still the CEO. Of course. (laughs) And should be. It should be. So do you worry, God, geez, maybe the next gig is going to be, have some hair on it. It's going to be much smaller than I'm used to. It's probably not going to be a public company. Have those considerations crossed your mind? No, it doesn't really worry me. And I 100% knew coming into GitLab, my role, my mission was marketing and strategy officer. And that crystal clear. And I agree with you. They would be fairly nuts to pull somebody that's never been a public company yeah. CEO to do that. I don't really worry or think about the future that much. I know you're pushing on the CEO thing. And if my husband were here, he would say, you're not going to be happy until one day yeah. you are. But I don't really I don't really know that that's true. In seven years, I could still be at GitLab having a heck of a time at now the biggest company I've ever been at. Totally. And continue going. At, like, I have an amazing team. I want them to all stick around. We're having fun. Yeah. So it's like, I don't have the vision board yeah. that some people have of like, must do this and then must do that and then must do that. Yeah. I think you're just ambitious. And I think at some point, I experienced this, it's difficult for one company to satisfy your ambition. By the way, in my opinion, the company gets the most out of you. You get the most out of the company. You push as hard as you can. And then eventually you figure out like, all right, is there something else that I can do here? And usually that answer is probably not, especially at your level. There's usually only one other job above you. It's true. You know, like that's a very natural. And I, I actually don't think that should be taboo to talk about. That's pretty obvious. No, it's kind of funny. Like if you were to talk to my parents or my grandparents back in the day, they all took a job and they did that job for 30 plus years through retirement. Then I pop into the scene. It's like every three years, four years, my longest, I'm a job hopper, but I have to explain to them, do you see I'm growing in my career every time I do it? And the reason I'm leaving is not because of that. I get bored. Yeah. I get bored quite easily. Yeah. Because you stop learning. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel challenged. Yeah. And the reservation that some people have talking about this is, oh, well, what's your team going to think? As an example, oh, she's, they're going to be worried that, that Ashley's going to leave the job tomorrow or whatever. The reality is, it's not like you're doing one-year hops everywhere. That's number one. Number two, the best thing that great leaders can do is find great opportunities. Because when they do that, then they go hire the people that they've worked with. People want to work with you probably because you're an amazing manager or whatever. People probably really want to work with you because you're at GitLab today. And GitLab's growing 68% year over year at $400 plus million of ARR. That's why they want to work with you because they have the same ambition that you do. They need to be at a company that's growing very quickly because they also have career goals that they want to satisfy. And for them to do that, they need to be at a growing company, there needs to be upward mobility, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're the person that then gets their foot in the door to then recruit and attract great candidates, that's good for them. It's true. Is that fair? It is. And I will say great company, great brand, as you've pointed out, GitLab has, makes it a lot easier to hire. Hell yeah. A lot easier to hire. 
Hell yeah. It was like that at Tableau. I'd open a role and there'd be like a thousand applicants. And so what do you end up doing? Internal referrals only. Have you worked with them before? Let's give them a shot. But same experience. And that's the privilege of post public companies. Yes. Is some recognition, some brand recognition, especially if you're in a similar space. Can you take 30 seconds or less to say, what does GitLab actually do? Yeah, absolutely. So GitLab, it's what we consider a DevSecOps platform. So what it does is it brings together everything that happens from beginning to end to develop software and deliver it to the market. So we like to say we help companies, software companies, deliver better software faster. And that's the bottom line. When you said your parents worked at somewhere for 30 years and they'd consider you a job hopper, when you were having dinner early on, would they talk about work? That's a good question. Probably. Yeah, probably. Like, was the conversation at the dinner table work-oriented? Well, it was always about that my parents were, they're fantastic parents, so it was centered on my brother and I. So, how was your day at school? How did it go? But they talked about work quite a bit, particularly as I got older and I got into my profession. You know, I talk to my mom every day. You do? And she, I do, every, every single day. day. Every single day. I'll call her as soon as I leave here on my way to, <laughs> to my next. So, yeah, we talk every day, and she was a speech pathologist, so she was in grade school, teaching, speech pathology. Of course she talked about it a lot. That's so much of your time. Do you talk to your mother about work? All the time. You do? I do. Yeah. I need a different perspective. I need somebody that, and it's typically about relationships. I'm not calling her to tell her about a bug in the platform, right? right? But she helps me, sort of guides me in my thinking on some things. I do it with my husband a lot too. Every single day when I come home or I call him, he wants to know how my day went. Yeah. And he gets really upset. I found this out last week. I, d- I just had a bad day last week. And I said, I, I just don't, can we just not talk about it? I could see the disappointment in his face. No kidding. All right, let's talk about it. <laughs> I didn't have a great day. And this is why. <laughs> and when those conversations were happening, was it framed around achievement? I ask because you are, and it seems like have always been very achievement oriented, meaning you are a s- amazing soccer player, right? That competitiveness, that drive, that ambition, the will to win, to your point about how you evaluate companies today, it seems to have always been there. It is. The competitive nature, I believe, actually comes from my dad. I'll give you an example. Every Thanksgiving, the whole family would get together and have a giant ping pong tournament. And I think it was my brother's wife on her first outing with the team, the Kramer family team. She could not believe how into it my brother, myself, and my dad got. By the way, I won that year. Mm-hmm. So I was, Not that was, you're counting. I am, and it was a pretty big <laughs> victory. But she, I didn't even remember some of this. She's like, you were hitting the paddle, and yeah. you were... So the competitive nature comes probably more from my dad's side. The accomplishment and the ambition, I think they would actually tell you they don't know. I've just always been that way. I've always challenged myself. I'd get mad if I got a B plus because it wasn't an A. You think you're born like that? I think so. I think so. It drives me nuts sometimes. I don't. I have two very accomplished dogs. Yeah. But no, I don't. What do you mean it drives you nuts? Well, because it's just the perfectionist in you. I will do something. For instance, we had sales kickoff in Denver about a month and a half ago. I thought it went great. I thought my talk went well, got good feedback. There's like one thing I did I didn't like. It's all I could think about. It's all I could think about is how can I get better at that next time? And that can be kind of maddening if you don't know how to distill that and you don't know how to get over that. Have you figured it out? 
I do. I know now I can recognize it now where I'm like, you are obsessing on something so stupid. Get over it. And then, you know, it's been a month now and I don't even think about it. I'm bringing it up now, but I don't even think about it anymore. But I obsessed over it for like four straight days instead of celebrating the fact that everybody did great in their keynotes. Isn't it funny, though, like those around you also know you're that way. It's not actually the thing that's happening. It's just you. The way that I've said it a lot in the past is you live in the gray area or the delta between your current state and your desired future state. It's just like a, it's a striver thing. It's an overachiever thing. Have you figured out a good way to quell that feeling? Like, have you figured out a good coping mechanism? Because it, you can't just ignore it and it doesn't just go away as you get older. I think it gets worse. I think talking it out actually helps. You know, my mom used to say it best. I played soccer, as you mentioned, and, you know, they would be at all the games. Sometimes I'd be great. Sometimes I'd have that day. They never had to tell me because I already knew. In fact, my dad tried to tell me once and we still joke about it. Told me I looked a little flat today. And it's like my husband's running joke now. Like, we'll go bowling. I'll have a bad game. He's like, a little flat out there. It's <laughs> an easy yeah. way to push it's your It's like, yeah, wow, wait, way to poke the bear. But um, <laughs> she used to tell me that when people would ask her, you guys hard on Ashley, like she's, you know, excelling at this. My mom would always tell them, we don't need to be hard on her. She's hard. She's hard enough on herself. Yeah. And they recognized that. And that was good because that meant they didn't actually push me, but they knew they didn't have to. And now it's on me for the rest of my life to figure out how do I, next time I do SKO, not focus on that one thing for four days that I didn't like and instead celebrate how great it was from every other perspective. Do you struggle sometimes coaching people because there's a frustration? Why are you not caring the way that I care about the thing that you're doing? Do you struggle having to hold others to the bar that you hold yourself? Not as much anymore. That was a big process for me. So I learned several roles ago that everybody does not want to be like me and everybody does not want my role. There's this really awesome person that worked for me at Alteryx and she came in one day and she said, I got to tell you something. I think you're trying to like put me on a path to be you and to have your job. I don't want any of that. I don't want to be on an airplane all the time. I don't want to work 24 seven. I want to make enough money. I want to have a family and I live my life. And it was one of the more eye-opening things I ever had where I was like, I do think that everybody that reports to me kind of just wants to be on my path. So it's the very first thing I ask now. When I started at GitLab, the very first conversation we had is what motivates you? What drives you? What demotivates you? Even more important. And what do you want to be doing in five years? And then I also tell them mine. So I give them mine as well. So we can calibrate to each other and work together better. What's on your list of demotivation? Well, demotivation. I hate when people don't like to collaborate. I played soccer for a reason. It's a team sport. I did run track, but it just never felt as good because like you individually win in most cases. And so I need collaboration. I need transparency and authenticity, particularly from myself to people. I can't put a lot of bows on it and I can't fake it. And I don't like when people do it to me. It's super, super important to me. The last thing that I think is really, really important is I like efficiency. And so I don't like when I'm working with people, when I feel like they're driving things in me toward inefficiency. What's an example? Too many meetings, a meeting without an agenda, 
calling me and talking at me instead of having a conversation together. Those types of things are major, major demotivators for me. Negativity, I go there sometimes, you know, and I can catch myself. Am I whining too much? Am I being too negative? I've learned to catch that because the answer is if you think you're being too negative or whining too much, you are. Bottom line, you are. And so those demotivate me when I can see people starting to go down that path. So it's on me to lift them back up without being overly excited because then I'll just drive them nuts. Yeah. What happens if someone, it's like, give me the, let's play this tape forward. All right. Someone walks in to an important meeting. Ashley's in the room. They're leading the meeting. There's no agenda. They just start kind of meandering. They set the table spend 10 minutes doing it. Are you sitting there about to jump out of your chair? What do you do? Yes, I would not derail the meeting. I'd let it happen. I would talk to them after. Sid is quite different and he's pretty transparent about this. Sid would stop the meeting. So efficiency is one of our six values at GitLab. And in fact, Sid's your CEO. Yes, Sid's our CEO and founder. And he's built this great, efficient sort of value and culture. He would stop and say, well, we don't present at GitLab and kind of give some coaching and then we'd come back when they were ready. I probably wouldn't do that. I worry about conflict and people too much. And so sometimes I probably let inefficiencies come into the meetings and into my life because of that. But I'm learning from him because it's very effective how he does it respectfully. But what is it? How does GitLab do it? The meeting thing? We have an entire public facing handbook that literally documents how you hold meetings. So you have the meeting, you have an agenda up front. If you can't make the meeting, you go in and put your items in the agenda and then you can come back and we document the entire conversation that happens so you can come back. Because since we're a remote global company, we have people in 60 plus countries. So it's unreasonable to think everybody can attend every live meeting and we don't want them to think they have to do that. And so because of that, it's ingrained in our culture. I would never go to a meeting if it didn't have an agenda outside of we do these things called coffee chats. Kind of what we're doing right here. You don't need an agenda for that. You shouldn't have an agenda for that. But it helps drive the, do I need this meeting? Or could this be done via a Slack message or an open channel or an email? It helps you think through that. It's pretty effective. I want to come back to GitLab. Okay. Because I have many questions. (laughs) But you said something that, makes a lot of sense to me now, which is that your mother is a speech pathologist. That's right. You are so good at speaking. I don't know how else to say it's not just public speaking. It's not just your rehearsed speaking that strikes me as very proficient. It's just your general ability to communicate verbally is unbelievable. And I've watched your interviews. You're just really on it. And I have to imagine that comes from your mom. Did you hear that, mom? Thanks. It has to. <laughs> it probably, has to. It probably does. Does she coach you on that? No, she she hates public speaking. She used to tell me, she she's watched some of my keynotes, you know, some of them stream, and she'll always call me after and say, like, I don't even like standing up in front of six people and talking. Where do you get that? It's comfort over time. It's you just get used to it. How much do you practice your keynotes? It depends. So for things like internal company things, I want it to be more authentic and I don't want to sound like a robot. And if you miss a point or two, who cares? So you have to balance the how authentic do you want it to be versus you must nail this message. And when I was at Tableau, 2016 was the biggest keynote I ever did. I think there were like 
10,000 people in the audience and 15,000 streaming and including my mom. And that was rigorous. Tableau, I don't know if you know much about Christian Chabot, but if the most charismatic, best storyteller I've ever experienced in my entire career. And I had him as sort of a speaking mentor. And it was amazing just watching the process. They went three months ahead, start bringing in the speaker coaches, all of that kind of stuff. And I don't have to do that anymore, but that's what it took back then. Can you talk to me more about the process? Like, let's go into it. Oh, so fun. So we had two different coaches. One was really nice and and I still use her from time to time. And the other was just like the straight shooter, no BS bulldog. He and I got along the best. And, uh, you know, we would start three months out getting the content right. And what they looked at was not just what you were talking about. Was it audience appropriate? Did it make sense? Because you start putting together a keynote, a speech. You say it so many times and you think about it so much, it starts to make sense to you. It might not to other people. And so they would take both lenses. And Richard was the coach that really pushed me. I did my very first for that, that keynote, my very first rehearsal, probably two months out, I just felt like I nailed it. I was like, oh man, you killed this. So good. He's gonna be so happy. And he took this long pause, took a drink of his coffee and he said, you're boring. And I paused and I looked back at him. I said, you're boring. And I could see our CTO, Andrew's like, did she really just say that? But that's what he, he needed to know. I could handle it. I didn't get all defensive and I didn't like crumble. I was like, man, I probably was boring, but I wasn't by the time I got on stage. Yeah. And Come on, tell me the truth. Are you shaking in your boots? You always get nervous. And it was my boss at Tableau that he had been doing this more years than me. And I asked him for advice. I said, like, do you get nervous before you go up? And he said, Ashley, every single time I go to get on stage, I think to myself, why do you do this? Stop doing this. You don't like this, even though he loves it. And he said, I just psych myself out. So I try to do the exact opposite. Yes, I get nervous and I pace. They made fun of me at SKO because I literally, I probably got two miles in back in the green Across room. The, oh, behind the stage. Just yeah. back yeah. and forth and back and forth. Yeah. And just, I try not to like think about it in my head. I try to think about other things, but keep myself focused. I more so try to take the approach of my team, whether it's the marketing team, the whole GitLab team, they're working so hard. I'm the voice of them. I need to get that message out there. That's the responsibility on me. I take more of that angle than a personal, what if I stumble? Yeah, like you're representing the team. I'm representing their great work. I I have the privilege of talking about it. But the other thing that somebody told me, I don't even remember who it was back in the day. You see people speak all the time. The only time you're uncomfortable in the audience is when they're visibly uncomfortable on stage. They want you to do well. They're rooting for you. So you have to think of that too, as comfortable and as enthusiastic and happy you are about the message, they're going to feel that. It's an energy thing. When you go in front of the board, do you get nervous? I don't. um, I probably did back in the day. I actually just did an interview about this and I I think the woman that was interviewing me was surprised. And I said, "I, I take the board opportunity in the exact same lens. This is my chance to tell them the team's doing great work. We know we have weaknesses. Here they are. Here's the mitigation plan but we've got this, have trust and faith, poke holes, that's your job, and come out with some clear action items and feedback to take back to the team. So no, the board, we do spend a lot of time together. Like we're going to go to dinner tonight before the board meeting. And so I think getting to know them, you can't do that in an audience of 10,000. Although I do usually go up in the front and say hi to people just so I feel like I have that connection. I'm going to be looking at you. You're the only faces I can see. 
for like the next 20 minutes, even though there's 10,000 people out there. So it's sort of getting that warm when up. you're giving a talk. Yeah. When you're giving a talk, there's so many lights on you and yeah. there's like monitors everywhere. And yeah. you know, so you literally see maybe two sets of eyes or like one person yeah. the whole time. Yeah. When you were playing soccer, would you get nervous before you go up for a big game? I'd get pumped up. You would? Yeah. I would always get pumped up for soccer. Yeah. And then I'm so fascinated. You started your career as an engineer at NASA. Is that where you started? I did. Yes. Software engineer? Yes. I was a computer science major in college. And then you went to Cerner. I did. Healthcare IT. Did that for three years. Yep. Then you went to Oracle. Did that for three years. Mm -hmm. Then you go to Amazon and you're in program management on the Kindle team. How'd you get out of engineering? That was six, seven years after you graduated? Yep. How'd that happen? I was doing a job because I had the degree in it and I thought it was the right thing. I didn't like it. And because I didn't like it, I probably wasn't the best at it. And so it was when I was interviewing with Amazon for a development manager role that the person I wish I could remember his name said to me, you're not actually a engineering leader in my mind. And I said, well, what I, what am I? And he said, program product manager, I'm going to get you on a flight, send you out to Seattle and have you meet with that team. And the minute I started meeting with that team and understanding what that meant, I was like, this, this guy's right. And I took the job. I said, this guy's right. I am more of a product person and not really somebody that wants to hide behind a computer and talk to the computer all day. I want to talk to people. Okay. So then you go to Amazon, you spend two years there. You're in Seattle. I moved to Seattle. Yes. I went and to Seattle. that's how you learn about Tableau, which is also Seattle based. That is. Yeah. Tell me more. How'd that happen? I was running on the treadmill one morning and uh, this company called Tableau was ringing the bell. They were going public. Oh, going public. And, yep. uh, and it's like a real weird, funny story, but I was, I was happy at Amazon. I was super happy. LinkedIn was starting to become more of a thing and a recruiter reached out to me. And I said to my closest counterpart, at Amazon, I said, have you ever heard of this Tableau company? They're, they're interested in talking to me. And he said, my wife works for them. She contracts for them on the marketing side. You have to go talk to them, which is funny because he was basically telling his partner in crime at the time to go somewhere else. Long story short, worked out, fell in love with the founders, fell in love with the mission, left Amazon, went there. His wife ended up coming and being a VP in marketing and um, no kidding. we're doing a keynote together in two weeks. <laughs> so she's, it's a small world. And then what happened with Alteryx? How'd that happen? You go, you're the GM of head of cloud for four years and then you leave, you go to Alteryx. You spend three years as the SVP of product and product marketing. Start hitting your stride on the product side. How'd you find Alteryx? Scott Jones. Scott Jones. And how did he find you? We worked together at Tableau. Okay. And Alteryx was the closest partner Tableau had because and then the way it worked is in most cases at the time back then, you had to use Alteryx to be successful in a lot of use cases in Tableau. Of course, they built into each other's spaces over time. What happened at Tableau, I loved my job at Tableau. I loved it. But we built Tableau online. It was becoming successful. I loved the business side of it. I was getting on airplanes and going across the world. And Sid makes fun of my title there, head of cloud. But I told him, like, the cloud wasn't a big thing back then. So, like, my job was to convince people to go to the cloud. And that became, that, that sort of became a little bit boring for me. And I didn't know really what was next. And Alteryx was at that same path. They had just IPO'd. They had a prep and blend product that they knew they needed to expand. So Scott went there first, probably called me about a month in. 
and said, why don't you come run all of product here? Why don't you come figure out with me how to take this thing to the next level and the rest of the executive team. That was really compelling to me. Plus that partnership had always been really strong. Spent three years there. Three years there. Probably got bored, maxed out, went to SciSense, became the chief product and chief marketing officer. How the hell does that negotiation go down for those titles? How does that even happen? I honestly, the reason that I reached out to you originally was I've never seen the combination of titles in anybody's resume before, let alone at like, I'm not talking about like head of pepperoni pizza plus hot dogs at Costco. Like these are like legit jobs. How did that happen at SciSense? They were looking for a product leader. They were looking for a CPO. They were looking for a CPO. That was the original job that you were interviewing for. That was it. And the recruiter who I'm still friends with kept calling, kept texting. Funny story. I told him, I will meet you, but it'll have to be at the Starbucks across from where I live. I didn't realize he lived in Israel. He literally flew over here. No way. To go to that. I feel feel bad about it to this day. I'm sure he had other things to do. At least I'll tell myself (laughs) that. And we had a great conversation and I made it pretty clear to him from the beginning. I see value in what SciSense does, but like that just being product leader there doesn't feel like the right path and doesn't feel challenging enough. And it was the CEO as we went through the process that was like, do you ever consider just all in on marketing too? And I thought, no, but it kind of makes a ton of sense. Every time I've been a product leader, I've been like, oh, they're messaging wrong. Every time I've been a marketing leader, I'm like, oh, I don't know what's going on in product. And it was a small enough company that it made sense. I would never recommend that for a bigger company. Mm -hmm. Why? Need more specialization. More specialization and more, I don't think it would be right for my team, for me only to give them, let's say 50% of my attention because I'm also running something else. And first of all, do you know another person that has concurrently held a CPO and CMO title at the same time? I don't. Okay, me neither. Then good. We can go on record. You tell me what works and what would surprise people that was very symbiotic about those two things, because at first glance, they don't seem to be. And what are some things that people don't think of that did not work about having those things together? The working well is the more silos you can break down. Marketing and products should be in lockstep. And so that's simple when they all are reporting through one person, through one massive org. It's more to me about what doesn't work well that I'll lean into here is, again, the time that I had, the time commitment. I'm giving 50%, 40%, 30% of my time and attention to each of them. And I think somebody, one team is always feeling underserved. And so that's why I figured out along the path, probably something that doesn't work out long term and I, I wouldn't do again having those big of responsibilities. You're going to mention at some point, I have two titles at GitLab, yes. Uh, I had a third last year as well, but they're different. It's not too, It's not all of product and all of marketing. It's slightly different. Were you presenting on behalf of product and marketing at the board meetings? Like, it's like, all right, we're going to bring up uh, Ashley Kramer to talk about the progress on product. And then, okay, we're going to bring up Ashley Kramer to talk about marketing. Yes, I was. (laughs) It does seem kind of funny now, I guess. Is that overwhelming? Like, was that a lot? When I went to SciSense, I had a playbook in my mind. Product, I was like, product I can do in my sleep, good to go. And most of the team was in Israel. So got to find a VP over there. But other than that, good. I brought the team to SciSense. So I had people in my mind that were available that I had worked with before. 
that I could bring in to really get marketing going. Yeah. Was there anything that you had to do around time management, calendaring, you color code, like these are my product, these are my marketing meetings? Did you have days that were specific to one or the other? I'm just curious, like, did you have to do anything different? Monday, Wednesday products, Tuesday, Thursday marketing. And since a large portion of the team was in Israel, Friday was kind of a get the other things, the external things, whatever else was needed done, because a lot of them would be going into their weekend. And so, yes, I tried to specialize the days. It doesn't work. It works for things like one-on-ones, but it doesn't work. Something's always going to pop up. And what happens then is you get into this deep brand conversation because we rebranded when I was there. Then all of a sudden you have to flip the switch and there's a product problem or engineering didn't deliver something. Now we, so much context switching. I don't know that they got the full me at any time. And that was the lesson I learned about what I wasn't doing for the team that well. That makes sense. And would it only work if the company was deeply technical and product oriented, meaning a lot of the marketing was through product, if that makes sense? It would not work. I think what you're alluding to at like a MarTech company. No, it wouldn't work because it was a deeply product centric company. Mm -hmm. I think it worked a little bit better. But no, I don't think that model, well, you've never seen it before, so maybe the model doesn't work Neither have you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For two years, I saw it. That's right. That's right. (laughs) And was there a negotiation with the CEO, who was also the founder? Like, I'm just stunned. How does that work? Because from their perspective, they know. They're like, all right, we could get all of Ashley to be our CPO, and we could get another Ashley to be our CMO or vice versa, whatever, or we'll split her in half. If I'm the CEO, I'm like, geez, that seems like a bad trade for me. (laughs) Well, I think I made it pretty clear from the beginning. I don't like to play games. So I think I made it pretty clear from the beginning. Like I'm not going to go be CPO. I've already done it at public companies. This is a private company still is. And so I think that's where he, he actually gave me several options. So he did come to the table with three different options And I thought the marketing one, because of what we talked about as a product, sort of product-led product company, that that made the most sense. Back then, it made the most sense. Yes. At Alteryx. No, this was SciSense. At SciSense. Yeah. Were there points where you were like, f*** this. Why would I have signed up for this? I mean, it was during a pandemic, so I said that like three times a day. (laughs) So so yes, but I don't know that I'd blame SciSense for that. No, I mean, I I enjoyed the challenge. I really enjoyed the challenge and I lean in more to the areas that I understand the least. I was learning a ton and I did exactly what I said. You know, I had the playbook coming in. I hired a VP over in Israel to sort of help the product team get to the next level. And marketing is what we really needed to evolve the fastest. So I spent a lot of time learning that, which was not the easiest for me. Product was the easiest back then. Yeah. And then how does it work when you're in an e-staff meeting? And you could ask that same question now about your two concurrent executive titles. How do you literally represent two constituencies? How do you even prepare for those meetings? How does that work? I just can't understand. Got to have a great team. So you have a great team. I mean... Like you're really leaning on your leaders. You have to. You have to. Yeah. More so than, and do you think that disconnects you in some way to the action? 
No, I think it actually connects me more because they feel empowered. I do skip level meetings. So all of my direct reports, I meet their direct reports on a monthly basis as well. It's fascinating what you learn and find out and how much you can learn in 25 minutes. So I feel very, very connected, very, very well prepared. And I think they probably like it more because I have so many things going on. Like at GitLab, I am very customer facing, always on airplanes, always doing things with customers, which means my VP layer in marketing has to be on it. They are running marketing. I'm there to help. I'm there to support, but I'm pretty external facing. And so it's, it's no different there either. When you do a skip level, what questions are you asking your employees, employees? The only question I ever ask them is how's it going both at GitLab and with whomever their manager is the rest of the time is theirs. They don't get to talk to me very often and I tell them I'm very clear. We can just, we can talk about your dog or your kids. We can talk about a deep issue you're having. We can brainstorm and they all bring something different, which is really funny, but I let them guide it. I don't want to be seen as the scary boss that comes in with an agenda and all of the, I want to be approachable and I want them to see it as this is our time to have a conversation about whatever you need to feel successful. Mm. And at, at GitLab, you're now the CMO, CSO, Chief Strategy Officer. And you mentioned you were interim CTO. I was. Right? I, I was. Yes. Last year. What am I missing? I don't <laughs> so, understand. Like, what am I, am I living in the upside down? Like, what am I missing here? This is a GitLab. This is a huge company. So let me. The, the, tell, tell me about the jobs. Okay. So CMO is the very standard CMO. Yes. And that's my core focus is being the CMO, build up a great team, they're doing amazing things, still progress to make. The reason the chief strategy officer came up was I love talking to customers. I think there's a lot of value in it for both the field team and myself to learn more. In DevOps, nobody wants to talk to a CMO. So I kept going back and forth with Sid in the interview process. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to be able to get in front of customers. There's a lot of learning to that. And it's like a very, very long story short at Alteryx, when I was running product, I bought GitLab. So I was actually a customer. I was a former customer. And I can go tell that story to our customers now that I was a former buyer and this is the problems it solved. And so we came up, everybody in the e-group owns strategy. So strategy officer is more so I can go and be in front of customers. And what's your strategy to gain efficiencies in software? This is where we're going as GitLab. And so the strategy hat is more of getting me in front of customers. It's not this giant org. There's not a ton around it. I do run product-led growth. The product team for product-led growth is part of that. But that part's fairly... It's more for credibility with the customer. That's right. That you are literally a part of the roadmap and a part of being able to represent a larger constituency than just marketing. Which we all are. That's silly. I mean, everybody is. CFO is, CLO yeah, when is, they, When is. you see CMO, you're like, oh boy. I was you like, know, what, gonna, what's she going to come yes. talk to me about? What yeah, it, how many slides is she going to have? Strategy officers coming in, right? And I can't it's more talk- of a partnership. Yeah, I can't talk as deeply as, let's say, say our product officer, who's amazing. There's this in-between. Right? CRO talks about one thing. CPO talks about another. I can come in build the relationship, talk about strategy. And we get in front of a lot of C-levels at big companies with that. When you joined, were you nervous that this is such a different space than what you've done before? The only reason I should have been more nervous, the only reason that I wasn't was 
GitLab is literally the most transparent company on the planet. Everything's in their public handbook. So I spent a month in between jobs learning everything I can, just absorbing everything I can. And because I had brought GitLab into one of my prior companies, I felt like I at least at a surface level understood what it could do. But yeah, it's still, I'm over a year in now and there's still words that pop up in like customer meetings. Like, I wonder what, what that is. Or like a competitor name I have never heard. I didn't have any of those problems in data and analytics at the end. I knew pretty much, I mean, it's crowded space, but yeah. not that crowded. I had become an expert, which is why I think a lot of people thought it was weird that I left the space, but it wasn't a challenge. So that's where I get most nervous when customers start talking. And I'm like, that is a new thing for me to go Google. Totally. When I get home. I don't think folks realize how transparent this company is. I'll give you an example in preparation for this. This honestly, I felt like I was violating your privacy. <laughs> Did you get to my read me? I went to your profile, okay, which is on the GitLab website. And I looked at the calendar that's there. I went to September of 2022. Okay. And the calendar this feels wrong. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm completely invading your privacy. Was coded by colors based on brightness or less bright. And the more bright the day of the month in September was, let's just say September 21st, was a very brightly colored square of the calendar. What happened that day? I was like, oh, what's going on? And there was a lot of contributions, meaning you contributed a lot of what looks like kind of like tickets in the system, which was just you're like basically emails is what I felt like I was reading. And one of them was talking about OKR planning and you were like, hey, this seems good. This day seems good. I was thinking about asking Sid, the founder, to come to dinner with me. So like, let me just come back to you. <laughs> and I was like, did they mean to put this out there? Like, what is going on? They did. That, that was when I was acting CTO. And so we use GitLab to deliver... GitLab. So we use GitLab to build GitLab, which is which is awesome. So as CTO, I got to get really hands-on in, in the engineering org in particular. When they merge their code, it's an open core company. So what does that mean? the majority of the code is available to the world. It started as an open source project. Everybody can contribute. That's actually our mission. And so it's kind of a cool thing on the marketing side. Like the whole world is my product incubator. We have the engineering team and the product team within the company. But we also have contributors across the world. And so what you saw, what you were looking at was, um, yeah, real back and forth conversations around our quarterly OKRs. And I did bring Sid to dinner to meet with my direct reports as CTO at the time. And that's funny that you found that. <laughs> you really dug deep. I had to stop because I was <laughs> like, I honestly thought I was like, this is a mistake. They shouldn't have put this out there. I read it. Why is it like that? Why is it so transparent like that? That's how Sid built the company. That's super important to him. His calendar, I mean, there's a private thing here or there, but our company calendar in internal is each of ours is public to GitLab by default. And he leads the way with that. He leads the way. We all know that Thursday night is date night with his wife, Karen, because it's on his calendar and it literally says that. And we know, I know when he's meeting with somebody on my team because I can see it. Uh, we call it calendar surfing. I don't actually do it that much, but that is how he's built the company. And that is what he believes. And I think he probably had to do that as a remote company. How do you make everybody feel it's included, make it inclusive? So Sid, he sets the bar high and he will be the first to remind us when he feels like we're not being transparent. Give me an example. Has he had to do that with you? Because I imagine this was 
a, there was a lot of growing pains because this company does everything different. Like it was born remote. I know everyone now is it's cool, it's remote or whatever. They were born remote. This company has literally published the manual of remote work that everyone started to reference when we went remote for COVID. It publishes OKR planning. It, pu- it publishes everything. Yeah, I, I guess I wonder what are some of the growing pains. Like, has it ever like to come up to you and say, you're not doing this the GitLab way? Absolutely. Particularly when I started, as we talk in meetings, we don't talk over each other because we are documenting what we're saying. And it was hard for me at first because I'm just used to conversation and I'd have a thought and I would just jump in and I'd see like, oh, shoot, that was Mike's turn to talk. And so it's a self-correcting thing, but he's not afraid to tell us. I love transparency and I felt like at every single role that I've been in, particularly public companies, I was going to get fired because I'm too transparent. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what earns you trust with the team. I don't worry about that at GitLab. I will tell you I wasn't here for it, but going from being private to public our legal team, our finance team worked magic, mad props to them because there is some stuff now that we simply can't have public. Which was public. Which it was, but yeah. it's not anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. like sales numbers. The, yeah, that was the, all out there. It, we still have roadmap and we still have really, really great things that we can share with the world, but in a quiet period, you can't be right. putting your numbers out there. So they went through a lot. They created this thing called SAFE Framework. Please don't ask me what it stands for because I, I didn't memorize it, but it's basically what is material non-public information versus what is okay to put in the handbook. And we still remind people of that all day. Why was two titles not enough and they decided to throw the CTO title your way? Why were you the interim CTO? Oh, it was enough. <laughs> it was enough. Like, why, why, exactly. Why couldn't they have given it to somebody that only has one title on the executive team? I, I mean, that would be a question for Sid, but I think he knew that we were going to go through a period where we didn't have one. And he knew I had the background and probably the ability and ambition to do it if that's what he needed. So he just called and we had a conversation about it. And he knew like it was never going to be a long-term thing. I knew that it was, please help the team while we go figure out who our next CTO is going to be. And I was good with that. Would you ever say no to that? Is there any bone in your body that could possibly say no? Well, I'm going to hope Sid's not listening to this, but I did want to say no. So I felt like I was at a really good groove with my team, really happy at the company and felt pretty balanced for like the first time in a long time. So after he, I got over the shock of him asking me to think about it. So give me a week. I went out and said to my husband, Sid wants me to do this. And like hoping he was going to be like, that's crazy. Don't do it. And he was like, well, you have to do it. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, Sid's put all this faith in you. You know, you can do it take the challenge. And I was like, well, you're likely not going to see me for the next X months because these are giant roles. So that's okay. I think you're going to love the experience and, and not do this forever. And so I actually said no in my head and he talked me out of it. How long did you do the job for? It was about, I'd say like maybe five months, okay. four or five months. And were you involved in hiring the backfill? Yes. And if not you, what would another company, how would companies typically try and stopgap an executive before they get to the next one. Wouldn't they usually just leave the role open? Or if not, the CEO is the one that takes that on? 
I think it was all considered. I think he considered yeah. all different avenues. I'm grateful he actually asked me to do it because I'm really close to the engineering leaders now. And why would the marketing leader ever get that opportunity? I'm going to have a drink with one after this that's flying out for the board meeting. And so I'm grateful for it. I think what it comes down to, and again, pattern recognition at all of my companies that just went public, succession planning. So I have several people in seat in marketing that if I don't come into work tomorrow for one reason or another, they can step up and maybe not be the permanent CMO, depending on what size or scale we're at, but they could report directly to Sid and manage the team until they figure out a plan. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Sid, the last three Alteryx, SciSense, GitLab, Tableau, you reported straight to the founder? Um, at Tableau, I did not. Alteryx, SciSense, GitLab. Yeah. They're all founder CEOs, correct? Amir was not at SciSense. So Amir was the fifth CEO, actually. He was the fifth CEO. Yeah. Working with someone like Amir, who's like a hired CEO, can you tell the difference between founder? Have you learned any tricks of the trade? Yeah. So my biggest learning around this was actually Tableau, even though I didn't have a direct reporting line, I was, yeah. I was pretty close to the founders and uh, Christian Chabot stepped down. I forget the year, probably like 2016, maybe. And Adam Slipsky stepped in and that was amazing to watch. So you had this founder, everybody loved Christian. Everybody loved working at the company. Christian made a choice to hand it over, stay on the board and hand it over to this AWS executive And I knew what that meant because I had worked at Amazon, operational efficiency and frugality, all the principles would start with the customer, work backwards. And it was really fascinating watching Adam come in and slowly change things, but he was really thoughtful about it. He actually called me in his office when he started and he said, help guide me on how to, you know, move things forward here without everybody feeling like, because I want to, I want to maintain this culture. It's an awesome company without everybody feeling jarred by it. And One of the things he asked me to do for my next meeting was write an Amazon narrative instead of presenting PowerPoint, which is what we did. And I did it and it was successful. And I would maybe not anymore now that they're part of Salesforce, but four years to come, he had changed that part of the culture and people appreciated that instead of feeling like he came in, they saw the value in it. But that was my most eye-opening experience is when you get a scalar non-founder CEO in, the things they focus on around operations, less tied to the product, not in love with the product like you would have with the founder. It's different. It's very different, but sometimes it's necessary. What's the toughest feedback you've ever gotten? I know you know what it is because it's probably the first thing that just made you sigh like that, even not in your stomach. It was from Adam. So it was from Adam. When I was leaving Tableau, he was gracious enough to call me on a weekend to talk to me about it. He knew my ambitions were to continue growing in my career, maybe be a CEO one day. He said, can I give you some feedback? And I, yes, I crumble. Like when somebody says that, it's like, oh, yeah. what's he going to say? Yeah, like what's you're he desperate say? for it, but you also I'm don't terrible. want it. Yeah. yeah. And he, he gave really, really sound and great advice, which was your bar is really high. Like your bar is super high. You drop people fast when they don't meet it. And he's like, to get to the position I'm in, you have to learn how to balance it. Not everybody's going to have your same ambition. Not everybody's going to work as hard as you. It doesn't mean they're not good at their job. It just means different things are important to them. So be careful about that bar when and where you write people off. And I still think about it all the time. When I'm starting to lose somebody in my head, I'm like, wait a second. Adam said, set it too high. 
and I need to help them rise to it instead of writing them off. Right, because you would then, as soon as you start to lose them in your head, you basically dismiss them and, and then treat them differently. And that was my feedback at Tableau. So he probably was tying it to, like you know, they don't even have a chance at that point. Well, the, and the bigger problem was they knew it. That was the bigger problem. Mm. They, it would show up in my feedback that we're terrified to get on Ashley's bad side because we know what happens. And so I've been really, really thoughtful. I probably didn't nail it at Alterx. I was still on a growth journey, but I, I've really tried to recover from that and really tried to bring people along, give them a chance, have more empathy, not my strong suit and assess everybody based on what they care about and where they can get without writing them off. Yeah. It reminds me of the conversation around, I'm paraphrasing, but loyalty is one bucket and competency is the other bucket. And sounds like you are over-indexing generally on competency yet Sometimes the people that are happy in their role, don't have ambitions to go do other things, don't want your job, are plenty loyal to you. Show up, consistent, steady. And there's something nice about that. It's just something dependable, if you will. You need both. And this is why you have that first conversation when you start a role. Everybody that was reporting to me, what do you want? You're right. They fall into one of those buckets. And some of them said, I don't want you to think I'm like lazy or whatever, but like I'm, I'm a VP and I'm good with that. That's what I want to do. I want to be a VP. I want to continue to grow the team. I want to retire early. One person told me he wanted to open a coffee shop. It's great to know. So I'm not going to push you in some direction to take my job or to do something different. But that is my most loyal team member, actually. Hmm. That person's my most loyal. That makes sense. I'm curious, and maybe this question goes nowhere, but do you do anything around goaling, organization, weekly to-dos. Do you have any rhythm or structure to your days, weeks, months, years that you think are worth sharing? Company-wise or personally? Both. Yeah. So from a company perspective, we're really good at this. I can't let you can go read all about it since you know how. Jesus. I know you're still so scared <laughs> so, about that. So scared. But yeah, we have, you know, the top five company objectives that roll into the top five marketing and the top five sales. Yeah, OKRs, products. yep. And then we do the OKR and then they cascade down. So from a company level, I think that helps get everybody on the same page. It's not perfect, but it helps get everybody on the same page. When it comes to me, I would like to tell you, yes, I do. But my job is doing so many things, wearing so many different hats that... I would go nuts if I said, okay, by the end of this day or this week, I need to accomplish this outside of obvious deadlines. We had a board deck due last yes. week. That had to happen. Yes. And that's what I try to do with my team is prioritize. All right, all these things are happening. Don't worry about these. I try to be very clear. Don't worry about, I'm telling you that at some point we have to think about this. Don't worry about it now. So I can help them gauge their time. But when it comes to me, every single day looks different. Do you have uh, yearly goals for yourself? As far as personal or professional, as far as professional, just the company ones. I don't really, it, what about personal for, yeah, for me, for personal every year, you know, as a new year and I assess what more I should do. I'll give you an example and I'm not doing a great job at this. I felt like last year I didn't really, no, it's actually two years ago. I didn't really feel like I saw family enough. We're coming off the pandemic. We we're all still kind of awkward. Yeah. My family lives across the country in Pennsylvania and I didn't really feel like we had enough family time. We nailed it last year. We had a lot of family time. We People in and out of our house the whole time, maybe a little too much. Mm-hmm. And so for me, a lot of my goals are around like, how is Ashley showing up 
to friends, to family. I probably don't spend enough time with friends right now. Mm -hmm. And so those are mostly what my, I don't have personal goals typically around career anymore. I used to. Mm -hmm. This is a personal question, so feel free to answer or not, but do you ever feel like your career ambition gets in the way of your personal life? All the time. All the time. I feel like I really need to go on this trip, but I've been gone a long time. I'm going to Europe in about a month. I'll be gone for a pretty sizable amount of time. That takes away from family time and that takes away from- For work, you're going to Europe. I'm going to Europe, yeah. yeah. And every day I struggle with, am I balancing this correctly? I have an amazing partner that I think pretty much told me on our first date that he loved that I focused on career and it's important to him as well. And I knew that that wouldn't be a conflict. That was very important because it would not work out otherwise. Yeah. Do you have any regrets? In life? No, just like within the context of career imbalance that had you seen it coming, you'd do it over? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the hindsight thing. Yeah, there's obvious things. What I've done is I've corrected. So I'd say several jobs ago, I was not with my husband and I always put professional over personal and it greatly impacted my personal life. And so what's the correction is make sure you're at least aware of that. Make sure you're having the conversation. Hey, I know it's your birthday. I have to be here. And do you want to come? There's a happy compromise right there. That Mm -hmm. is actually what happened for my husband's birthday last year. And so just keeping it more top of mind and not being so selfish and so focused on self and career are definitely the mistakes I made in the past that I try to correct every day going forward. I'm not perfect at it. Do you feel like a part of the reason why maybe you want to go to the venture or investing side is because maybe it just takes a toll, this the balance that you otherwise would get when you come on to the non-operating side? Maybe I do. I have gotten feedback that I'd probably be bored doing that, at least right now. You'd lose your mind. <laughs> at least where I am right <laughs> now. Lose your so, so I am doing a lot of angel investing because I think first and foremost, I got to find out if I'm good at this. Mm-hmm. I bet you I'm not. So for me, yes, I have gotten the feedback that you're going to sit in those Monday meetings or you're going to sit in the boardroom, give all this feedback, and they're going to do 1% of it. And it's going to drive you crazy because you just want to roll up your sleeves and go fix it and go do it. So until I feel like I have all of that out of my bones, all of those operational ambitions and the enthusiasm, you're probably right. It's not the right step. Yeah. This is kind of a random one, but do people ask you like younger people? Hey, how do you network? Does anybody ever ask you that? They do. And it's, it's a really hard thing to answer because it's, in fact, I just had a senior director ask me that the other day and it's like, it gets easier. You know, I'm, I'm a CMO at GitLab. So I get invited to like the CMO experience at Dreamforce and where yeah. everybody is and all of these great round tables and do all these things. So it's, it's easy for me. What I try to do then is then I try to ask them like, Hey, who is your best leader of product marketing. I'd like to connect them with mine. Who do you know that's really great at this? So I try to help them, but it is hard in certain roles just to go quote unquote network. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really hard thing if you're not a C-level, if you're not a VP. Yeah. There's this guy, Naval. I don't know if you know who Naval is, but if not, you should get to know who he is. He's amazing. He's like, he started AngelList. He's an investor. Okay. And he's also like a philosopher. He's like a capitalist philosopher, wow. which in my book gives him so much credibility because he's not like a Buddhist monk in the, in, <laughs> in, you know, like he sees the world the same way that I do. Okay. 
Anyway, he said something about networking that's always stuck with me, which is like, there's no secret to networking. Like if you want to be good at networking, be someone worthy of being networked with. And that really struck me as like the real secret about networking is be the person that people reach out to, not the person that's reaching out to everyone. And if you think about it that way and you couch the conversation in that, then you really start working on yourself. Really then, everything you're doing is to go achieve. And then the game kind of comes to you in that sense. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't send out some LinkedIn notes and be proactive with your boss about getting introduced to other of your peers. But anyway, that always stuck with me. Yeah, and it's I always appreciated, and I, I possibly mentor too many people at this point, but for the last few roles as I transitioned out, I've always had one or two people ping me and be like, can we touch base monthly? One lives in Dubai, one lives in Barcelona, so they're not just US-centric. And it's been probably five years and going with the one in Dubai. And it was because she reached out and said, hey, I really you know, learned a lot from you and valued it and gave her advice on her next job when she left, which she's at a killer company now. And so I think there's a little bit of a boldness you have to have too. Random blind reach outs are hard for me. You know, we we get a lot of inbox messages or in-mail messages on LinkedIn, but those people you know, right? Those people you're already connected with are probably your best path if you're looking for who can I continue following, who can help me continue networking. I wrap most of these things up the same way. I say most of these things. I wrap every single one the exact same way. So the first is, are you hiring? I get generally a little bit trepidatious to ask that these, these days. days yeah. These days, we are. But I suspect you are. Key roles, key go-to-market, engineering Any products. Any key, key roles that you want to shout out that you're hiring for? We are looking for some great product marketers right now. Okay. And that's a special snowflake at a company like GitLab because you got to be fairly technical and understand the product and then turn it into the market message. So that's one I will give a big shout out to because it's a really critical part of what we're building. When you think of the word grit, who do you think of? Who do I think of? Wow, that's a good one. Does this stump a lot of people? Well, the thing is, I've always asked, what does it mean to you? That's my canned question. But at this point, I'm 130 episodes in. So everyone- They say like, the same thing. I feel like, like I would have said something unique. No, you didn't give me a really? Shot. Did, but the thing is, you had something prepped that was unique, didn't you? <laughs> like what you told me you were going to ask it. Exactly. And the whole show is unprepped. So why do I have one section? Okay, fine. I want both I'll answers. I'll give you an answer. Give me the prepped. Give me the prepped grit. What does grit mean to you? And then, I, and then that'll buy you some time to tell me who you think of. I'll give you the answer. I actually think my boss, my CEO, Sid, has a ton of grit. If you look at what he did, founding a company back in, I think it was 2011, now a very successful public CEO, and all of the pivots he's had to do, all of the feedback he's had to take in, all of the things that have happened because he's built this transparent company, both great and both, okay, learning experience, that's gritty as hell to me. That's a good answer. Okay, what about the other one? I want to know the other one too. What does the word mean to you? To me, the word is defined by the motivation, the determination, and most importantly, the stamina you have to really go toward whatever that end goal is for you. And it shouldn't be short-term. It shouldn't be next week. She's like, as an end result, what's it going to take to get there and never give up? You're right. It was a good answer. <laughs> I told you. It was Ashley 130 Kramer. in. It was the first time you heard that. Ashley Kramer, everybody. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. 
that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to check out more than 100 past interviews that we've done and more amazing guests to come every Monday morning. This episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in for an hour plus every week.